It's Thursday, May 28, 2015. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Folk Runyon, and tonight we have as our special guest Frater Julian of the Benjamin Franklin Encampment, who is an expert in Pennsylvania folklore relating to witchcraft and magic. Now, we will be discussing his paper on the mysterious Roman family of the colonial Quaker community and Johannes Kelpius, the wizard of Wissahickon, and his cave of Kelpius, and his apocalyptic prophecy in the 1690s. We'll also be talking about the Aferrata Rosicrucian Cloister. And then we'll move on toward modern times with Dutch powwow, and then Hexcraft, and the curious case of the Hexen Cat and its capture. The York County 1920s Hex Murder Case. So, if you want to catch up on your American occult and witchcraft heritage, then tune in for Weird Pennsylvania on the air. And let me say this. There is a book called Weird Pennsylvania, and I didn't realize that they had a Weird Pennsylvania book when I put that title on it. And we don't have any connection with that book, and we're not, we're not promoting it, although I, it may be very good and all that, but we're not promoting that book. And anyway... Uh, let me find out if, uh, uh, do we have Frater Julian on the line yet? Good evening, Frater, Pope. Frater, can you hear me? I can hear you fine. And uh, and uh, really glad to have you on. And like I said, uh, when I came up with this, this title for the show, Weird Pennsylvania, I didn't realize that that these these weird book people have done one for almost every state now, including Pennsylvania. And... Uh, but uh, you've given you've given us quite an outline here of what uh, you're going to talk about, and uh, uh, we'll get on to your to your outline here. Remember, uh, the first thing was the first section was Quaker cunning folk, and that was Robert Roman and his and his sons and and all. And you you started off with a brief background of your research into the into the topic and and. Uh, and you're, you're, uh, you worked as a fellow in, uh, in your university's Department of History and Politics, and uh, the original source documents that were held at, at Swarthmore College and the historical artifacts at the Chester County Historical Society. You want to uh, pick it up from there and, and tell us about all that? Sure, Pope. Well, first of all, thanks for having me this evening. It is an honor uh, and a privilege. Um, as you stated, I, I did some research uh, with the Drexel Department of History and Politics, uh, Drexel University in Philadelphia. And I was originally going to be doing research into uh, the European witch trials. As the uh, professor that I was working with, his name was uh, Dr. Jonathan Seitz. He, he's, he's published in the area of Italian witchcraft. And once him and I networked together, uh, we caught up about some more local matters, and that's kind of how my research started. Um, so... As I dug into the local stuff, Polk, one of the first things that really stood out to me in the literature was this case of uh, Philip Roman. And I started to do a little digging into the, the, the trial, so to speak, this Quaker legal proceeding, and I realized that there was maybe something more to it than the old poison the wells story that we're all too familiar with. Um, these guys, it was uh, 1695, 
and it was December 9, 1695, and there's kind of a blurb in the Quaker meeting notes that talks about uh, Philip Roman and his brother Robert Roman. Uh, they call them friends' children, being the Society of Friends. Uh, it says that they were spoke to about those arts and sciences, uh, that being an abstract reference to, uh, you know, the practice of the occult. And it says that they seem to disown what is mentioned except astrology. And it says that much was said to them, but it was not received. So this is kind of the first uh, slap of the wrist of the Roman family, and they, they don't seem too receptive to it. So just a quick outline of the family tree. You have Philip Roman Sr., and then you have his two sons, Philip and Robert Roman. Um, so these are the two younger gentlemen that are kind of getting called into the, the principal's office there in, in Chester County that are being told that they shouldn't be practicing astrology. Um, now, you actually see a little bit earlier in the meeting minutes that they talk about a, a curiosity pertaining to astrology, chiromancy, geomancy, and negromancy. Uh, that's actually the verbiage they use there. And eventually, you, you find that they're going through the house to search for you know, evidence of some kind. So by the king's authority in Pennsylvania at this point, he was, um, it, was, it was not a state yet, obviously, it was a province. They're still under British rule, obviously. And they have the king's authority to go into the house and search, and they find three books. And this is where I realized that this was not quite a typical case of the old village wise woman. Um, they find the fourth book of occult philosophy. They find one chapter in that that deals with necromancy. Uh, that's obviously pseudo-Henry Cornelius Agrippa, as, as the scholarship shows probably. They find Reginald Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, uh, which is a critique on, on the practice of magic that tries to demonstrate that it's a superstitious thing, but inadvertently it becomes sort of a grimoire in and of itself. It's a very thorough catalog of spirits. I would almost describe it as a proto-Goetia, which is, is particularly pertinent to our interest here in the order. Uh, and they also find another book uh, called The Theomagia, or The Temple of Wisdom by, by John Haydn. And that's kind of a Rosicrucian book, and, and that's particularly interesting given the, the early American uh, political landscape there. So, so they, they wrote these guys in, and they, they basically, you know, raked them over for, for being associated with the practice of the occult. It eventually culminates into this, this legal trial where Robert Roman, and he seems to be our, our key figure here, he's accused of taking away the wife of a man named Henry Hastings. And that's where things get really, really interesting. Um, so as I did the research, I started to realize that this was, this was sort of a serious accusation. He's now being accused of not only, um, you know, practicing judicial astrology and, and, you know, answering questions such as, you know, where is the, the village horse that's been stolen. He's now being accused of, of breaking up a marriage. It's, it's something quite more practical. Um, we don't know if he's being accused here of, of, you know, being a philanderer or if he's being accused of maybe using some of his uh, magical knowledge to interrupt, uh, you know, conjugal relations between a husband and wife. But we do know that it was serious enough to drag him into uh, basically court. There, was a, there were two separate courts at the time in the area. There was the, the Quaker court, so to speak, and there was also the King's court. And he was ready to get in trouble in both of them. <laughs> so, yeah. 
Let me just uh, uh, catch up on something on Reginald Scott's uh, uh, um, discovery of witchcraft. You're, you're absolutely right when you say that this, this book was published uh, really to kind of discredit witchcraft. That was Scott's intention. But he had so much witchcraft and magic in there that it became a very popular book and almost like, almost like a grimoire that people were, were buying. You know, it became a bestseller. And, and the king finally tried to have all the copies burned. And there's a similar thing with Dean Kelly's, uh, uh, you know, with the Casabon's true relation for Dean Kelly. He, he published that to discredit Dean Kelly, and then that became it's the same thing. That that got the whole Nokian system started. So these, uh, yeah, they they had a book uh, that with the discovery of witchcraft, uh, and and of course uh, Cornelius Agrippa. Uh, I can see where they would get in trouble with having both of those. Um, sure, sure. I just wanted to and the, and got it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the 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 book that they found that was pseudo Agrippa poke. It was a chapter from the fourth book. Uh, that's what it seems like. And it actually deals explicitly with how to raise the dead. Um, and it's not it's not something not in the showroom spook uh, spiritualist sense, but it actually talks about getting down there basically with the blood, and I think it talks about mixing in eggs and things like that, so it's very explicit. And the other thing that's very interesting about the method that, that Pseudo-Agrippa talks about in the fourth book, he explicitly says when talking about this form of literal necromancy that you're, you're only going to really have any success in, in raising the dead if it was somebody that, that you know, was a bad person obviously hasn't had that smooth crossing over, or, or somebody that died tragically. So what you get in that, that sense, I think Lovatsky called them showroom spooks. You have the unsettled ghosts, for, for want of a better term, that you're actually able to talk to. I think the, the, the worldview there is that anybody else is, you know, quite happy, cap, happily in the hereafter. <laughs> so you're, you're, yeah. actually dealing with, you're actually dealing with the remnants there when you're, when you're working that kind of uh, practice. Um, so you've got this whole, you know, saga unfolding with the Roman brothers. And, and basically, Pope, what happens is, is the one brother, Philip Jr., he's pretty quick to, to tuck his towel between his legs and, and, and kind of run in the other direction. And it's, it's Robert, who, who's younger. He was actually 23 at the time when this was all going down. He, he kind of dug his heels in. And he, he basically was, was accosted by the Quakers, and he said he was going to keep doing this as long as it would help others. Um, and, and, and obviously that catches my eye because of some of the verbiage in the Fama Fraternitas uh, in the Rosicrucians who, you know, had, to, had this obligation to heal the sick gratis and, and all of these things. And I, I can't speculate that Roman was affiliated with them, but it, it is a poignant consideration given the, the library. Um, so it is certainly an interesting thing. And the other thing is this, this environment, to, to practice astrology, it was suggested to me by one of my referees in the in the academic review process that astrology was was merely a form of hubris, uh, and, and it was kind of a presupposition that the the practitioner could make predictions and you know how how silly that is and it's kind of a form of you know stroking one's own ego, but but actually these guys these guys were involved in practical magic from from their library at the very least and, and the Quakers in particular. Um, were very, very hostile to the Roman calendar. So they would not even use the Roman months. Um, they started their, their year in March. It was actually, I think, March 25th or March 23rd. I think it was March 25th was their New Year's. And their dating structure throughout 
all of the paperwork in that time period is actually such that it says the first day of the first week of the first month. They won't say January because of the Roman connotations there and the god Janus. You know, all of these things are so pagan to them that they will not even use the name of the month. And here you have two young men, 20-something-year-old 20, guys, that are literally in possession of books talking about how to raise the dead. Um, you know, Reginald Scott's discovery of witchcraft goes into such particulars that it talks about, you know, you might have an easier time summoning the spirits in, in bad weather because they're, you know, inclined towards that. So, you know, it, it's bad enough if you can't use the, the Roman months. But to be caught with these books is, is you know, rather red-handed, if, if you might say so. Um, well, they didn't. They didn't get caught with any equipment, though, except the sundial later on, and uh, and, and uh, the, the the sundial has it probably has some relation to astrology. You want to talk about that sundial, though? Yeah, absolutely. So, so years later, um, let me let me pull up the, the note here. Uh, a sundial was made, and it was actually uh, tagged Philip Roman, which is kind of interesting because Philip Roman we thought was the one who who kind of tucked his tail between his legs and was the, the so-called, you know, well-behaved one, for, for want of a better term. And it was actually, um, it was made in 1726. So all of this stuff started happening in 1695. In, in, in 1726, there's a brass sundial that was made that was tagged Philip Roman. Now, it could have been the, it could have been the father. It could have been Philip Sr., but it's probably more likely that it was Philip Jr., and this guy, he was something of a globetrotter. He was back and forth to England. Uh, he was described as a doctor of physic. So you see here this idea that, that, you know, almost somewhat along the lines of Franz Barden, he was practicing medicine, uh, obviously, in addition to whatever studies he, he would have been inclined towards. And, and he's, he's got this sundial that it's this magnificent piece. It's about six or seven inches in, in, in diameter, and it's held locally here in Westchester, Pennsylvania, which is only about 30 minutes from Philadelphia. Um, and it, it's very intricate. It's so intricate, in fact, that, that one of the folks who read the initial draft of my paper thought that there was no way it could have actually been crafted by somebody here in the early colonies. And I think part of the interesting story there is that by marriage, the Roman family was actually related to the Taylor family. Um, and that's where you get the connection to the almanac trade. Uh, there was a guy named Isaac Taylor. He was married to Philip's daughter, so it was basically the brother-in-law of Philip and Robert Roman. And Isaac Taylor was very prominent in his own right. Uh, and his brother Jacob was an almanacier, uh, very much like Ben Franklin, our, our encampment's namesake. Um, and he would he would dabble in in you know esoteric trimmings in his almanacs. And to find out that the, the gentleman being accused here of astrology and, and divination and even necromancy has that kind of a connection to somebody in, in the literary field who was actually known to, to trade in books, and not only that, but also produce occult literature. Um, Jacob Taylor actually had produced one of the first, I think, the first uh, catalogs of solar and lunar eclipses in, on American soil. So he was obviously you know, very well versed in astrology in his own right. So to see that kind of connection here shows that it, it quite literally is a family affair here for these guys. 
I think I think where where the where the sundial is, if you start digging around uh, with your trowel uh, under the uh, under the hearth or something, I'll bet you're going to dig up an astrolabe. And and uh, if you keep digging, you might dig up a little chest with some Solomonic tools in it, <laughs> and that would be very exciting. Yeah, because. I, I suspect, you know, I, I, from reading this, and I read your paper, of course, and and and, and uh, from from reading about the Roman family, I I suspect that that, uh, that some tools are hidden around somewhere, and they just didn't find them when they searched the house. Uh, do you want to tell us about this, Johannes uh, Kelpius, the wizard of Wickahicken, uh, uh, uh Sure, absolutely. You, you, you don't get too far in researching the local occult history folk without stumbling upon the work of Johannes Kelpius. Um, colloquially, we call him the Wizard of the Wissahickon. So, actually, ironically enough, I think it was um, it was 1694. Um, let me just double check that. In 1694, he comes over here to America, and it was actually June 23rd, 1694, to, to maybe better localize this. So a couple days after the summer solstice, Johannes Kelpius comes to American soil, and he's right in northwest Philadelphia in the Fairmount Park section. Um, runs right along the creek there, and him and his followers, they're described in the more reserved literature as German pietists. They, they themselves kind of form this, this uh, society of a woman in the sorry the society of the woman in the wilderness, and there's been all sorts of speculation as to what exactly they were involved. And in. I know Kelpius himself uh, w w had his hands in a lot of pots, but there has been speculation that there's been ties to uh, early Rosicrucianism here. And it, you know, it, it's one thing to say that there's a gentleman in the caves in the 1690s, but Johannes Kelpius had letters going in every which direction. He had people that he was in touch with here. And there's always been a uh, sort of a mystical mystique around him. Part of that owes to his, his prophecy that the world was ending very soon. Uh, so he was only, uh, I believe, you know, 20-something years old, maybe 28 years old when he came over here um, in, in his mid to late 20s. And he was already prophesizing that the end days were here. Um, so that's kind of how he, he settled himself in as the head figure of the Society of the Woman in the Wilderness. So they, you know, this is this is... You know, you talked a little bit about John Dee, and you know, this is this is headed right into that Christian Christian idea of you know apocalypse, and and they're basically bunkering down in the caves there with the society of the woman in the wilderness. Uh, one of the interesting. Like it also sounds like a very early Numenarian cult before Miller. Before Miller, you know, uh, uh, it, it sounds like this guy had the first Numenarian cult. Uh, you know that that in anthropological terms we we talk about apocalyptic cults. Uh, you sure. know, are referred to as Millerian, and after a guy named Miller who started one, oh, about I guess a hundred years after uh, after uh, uh, Calpius. Yeah. So uh, he. Uh, uh, so, but but was was he? Uh, now, now what about his cave? So there's actually, uh, you can actually still find it. Unfortunately, uh, it, it's been collapsed, I think, by some parks and rec folks, eventually collapsed the cave. But in, in the fair, it's in Fairmount Park. Um, there's a little section of the park that actually has uh, trails and whatnot. And he had a cave there, and you can actually still find it. Uh, there's also a, a hermitage that they call it. There's, 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 a, there's a cave, and there's also some kind of, you know, underground building of some sorts. I think there, at some point there were people that speculated that they found his prayer hut or his house. 
And, um, it, it, you know, whether or not Johannes Kelpius was a Rosicrucian, that, that is perhaps a question for another day. But I will tell you this. At some point in, in much more recent history, I want to say it was the 70s or the 80s, uh, the AMORC whisked over to Pennsylvania. And I, I know that the AMORC, I think, originally was a West Coast thing, um, but they're, they're everywhere now. They put up a rather big monument to their brother, Johannes Kelpius. So whether or not he was a Rosicrucian, the Rosicrucians have adopted him. <laughs> and they, well, Spencer they, Lewis, Spencer Lewis liked to like to say that that Inconotin was the first Rosicrucian. That was his, uh, <laughs> you know, that was one <laughs> one of his one of his uh, ideas. And uh, and of course uh, he also uh, he also started the Lemurians on Mount Shasta. And then he backed out of that one when the when there got to be too many of them up there. <laughs> but so uh, yeah, so so he. Uh, but however, uh, if Johannes Chalpius uh, was was uh, connected with the Rosicrucians, uh, that leads us to this uh, this uh, apparatus cloister of the Rosicrucians in colonial times in Pennsylvania. And uh, yes. do you think he might have been connected with them? You know, I, I don't know that he was connected with them. I think they were a little later. Um, I think they were in the early 17, within the 1730s, uh, 1720s, 1730s, there was this Sephrotic cloister. Um, and, and your expertise there, Pope, probably is far excessive of my own. I know that, that we not, have a connection there through the, the Johannes Gittel. No, no, no. yeah. <laughs> Let me say this. One of our, one of our uh, 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 very, very good uh, uh, brothers, uh, uh, brother Hermes, uh, managed to get into get into some of their, their, their what what has survived of their archives, and he found a uh, representation of you know, of uh, Johann Gichtel's Natural Man, which is the original Western Psychic Center system, the original Western Chakra system, uh, and. They had a reproduction of this in their uh, rather crude in their uh, in, in their uh, records or in their uh, their documents. So we uh, we can speculate that they were uh, that they were uh, perhaps uh, uh, acquainted with the uh, with the Western uh, with the Western yoga system, but that's just a speculation. And and uh, however. I, I do recall uh, seeing one of their buildings, uh, a big, big, uh, great big uh, wooden dormitory photograph of it. I think it's still still standing with tiny little windows. It didn't look like something you really wanted to stay inside. <laughs> uh, and I don't know if that's still in existence, but I remember seeing a photograph of it in, in uh uh, they, so they had, uh, they they did have quite a uh, quite a little community going for a while, and uh, uh, now you, you say Amwork Amwork has an official presence in, in the Philadelphia area now. Uh, honestly, I, I'm, I don't claim any affiliation there. I, I do know that Amwork uh, Amwork has a, a Pranalis in Allentown, which is a little bit further further you know out of out of the city area, but. They did. They did rush to put that monument at the the Kelpius uh, site, which is kind of an interesting thing. I think that was you know 30, 40 years ago at this point. Uh, but now you know Amwork is is you know rather ubiquitous in this country. Um, and yeah, they 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 claimed Kelpius. 
And, you know, the Ephrata Cloister, I'm looking at the date now, it was 1732. Um, so maybe 30, 35, 36 years after, after Kelpius was, was, you know, settled in. And, and obviously, I, I guess it was good for the Ephrata Cloister that the world did not end uh, because that was what Kelpius was banking on. Um, yeah. And, you know, you, as you mentioned, there's a lot of, a lot of uh, speculation you know, these guys, you know, it seems like they were involved in some rather hermetic studies, maybe even some Rosicrucian studies. There's very little definitive there. You can only kind of, you know, see the smoke to the fire of the rose, so to speak. You know, even, even, yeah, in, yeah. In, the Ro even in the Roman case, uh, they had the book Theomagia by John Haydn, which is rather Rosicrucian in its scope. And at some point, Haydn says, you know, we're not of the Rosy Cross, but we're interested in their studies or their mysteries or something along those lines. And in the, in the book, Theomagia, it's actually got a preface by Georgius Stark. And, and there's speculation among the academic crowd, but I think there's a, a pretty good case that Georgius Stark was actually Irene, Irenaeus Philolets, who was probably the preeminent American alchemist. So whether or not these guys were in the upper echelon of, of you know, the, the hermetic elite in the country, they were certainly reading their books. Um, and, and to me, that says something right there, because we're not talking about, you know, being able to run to the bookstore. We're, we're talking about colonial times, and even to have a book or a library, I think, is a rather poignant thing at that point in history. Yeah, and having to order, having to order books uh, and and uh, oh, to be have, have them sent over from England by ship, oh boy, you know, I mean, uh, and you were uh, you were lucky if you could if you could get them on the ship, and then if you were lucky if they got on the ship, if they'd ever get to you. But uh, I can I can see it would be really really difficult. And uh, now, uh, Kelpius, uh, has any of Kelpius's work survived? His uh, his uh, writings. I believe so. There, there, there are some letters that I've seen floating about, um, and there's also a number of books I've, I've, I've seen some across in the Wiser catalog. Basically, the, he, he appears in a lot of anthologies on German, German pietism and, and things mm -hmm. of that nature. So not only, not only Kelpius, the other big keyword there is his society. I mean, he was kind of the figurehead, as you said, the miller of, of a potential doomsday cult, but, you know, that lends itself to a whole cast of personalities in and of itself. Um, any any oh, yeah. order or, or or cult is going to have, you know, the the number two and the Don Quixote and the Pancho Villas and you know all of these guys. This crazy horse has his people, <laughs> so so he um, he certainly had his followers and and their work is out there as well. Um, so it's 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 definitely an interesting cast of people. One of the things that that Kelpius supposedly had, and and this might lend to your your idea that he was a, a figurehead or a cult of personality. Um, he had this thing that they called a stone of wisdom, um, and that was supposedly half of a stone that he had come across in India. And that thing has, has sort of taken on a rather uh, legendary um, relic status almost. So you have this guy in, in colonial America that came over from Germany that has this Indian artifact. And that is, yeah. you know, that is just a very curious thing to anybody, you know, three or four hundred years ago to have your hands on a real piece of the Orient. Um, so he he really had a, a lot of a lot of interesting legends pop up around him. There's actually a legend that that stone was thrown into the Wissahickon River, or Wissahickon Creek, excuse me. So yeah. you know, there's, there's you know he's got his very own Holy Grail you know legend so to speak. Yeah. 
Well, moving right along, let's uh, uh, let's uh, look at your outline here. Let's talk about uh, the Dutch powwow uh, 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 system or tradition or whatever. I I uh, I I know powwow sounds kind of uh, like an Indian powwow. Does that work? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that the the, scho- the scholarship there. You're absolutely right. Um, at some point when these, these practices, this sort of a, a folk magic practiced by the Dutch, um, the, the folks that were not quite uh, in the know, for, for lack of a better term, they thought it looked rather Native or Native American, so they used the term powwow. Um, you know, it's kind of akin to the, the redskins. You know, it's a very colloquial term to refer to something that looks vaguely shamanistic to them. So they used this term powwow to describe really what, what didn't have anything to do with Native American shamanism whatsoever. Uh, as you're well aware, folks, this kind of stuff, this Pennsylvania Dutch folk magic, it comes from German grimoires. And most yeah. of them were, were, were actually rather Christian in nature. They weren't shamanistic at all. They were you know, much more closer to the Sol- Solomonic or the Albertus Magnus material than they had anything to do with you know, Cherokee or, or anything like that or Lenape or any number of tribes. Yeah, well, we, and, and we I, mentioned that yeah, the sixth and seventh books of Moses were quite uh, quite prominent among these uh, these folks. Um, oh, you know, they, they, absolutely. And absolutely. now, uh, yeah, this gets us into the uh, into the the whole hex sign business. And everybody, I think everyone, even people who haven't been to Pennsylvania, and and when I was a kid, we we you know I, I I spent some time in Pennsylvania, and I remember driving through the countryside, and my mother, who was you know Pennsylvania Dutch, and she would point to the hex sign every time we'd see a hex sign in a bar, and she'd say, "Look, look, look at the hex sign," you know. So <laughs> I think I've I've seen a bunch of hex signs between somewhere somewhere on the way past Scranton to Lake Ariel. I saw a lot of hex signs. Are they still? Do you still find them on the barns around there? Oh, oh, Poke, absolutely. Not only not only do you have hex signs, there's 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 kind of a new cottage industry of folks that, that still craft them along traditional lines. So yeah, as you said, once you get up in the, in the more rural areas of the state, um, whether you're talking about Berks County or Yorks County or or, or or Northampton County, you know, there's any number of barns and, and you know, even slaughterhouses and things like that, you will see these hex signs that are painted on on the barn. And, and you know it's, it's kind of an unspoken of you know matter of fact the, the local folks don't don't really bat an eye at them and and they they tend to pop up in areas that are they're quite Christian you know these Amish or the Mennonite areas are, are, are a lot of the farmers here in, in Pennsylvania and of course you know throughout the East Coast in Ohio and, and and Delaware and and places like this and these hex signs you know they're almost like a calling card um, and the name obviously calls forth the, the idea of, of witchcraft and hexery. And also, hex is six, and you've got the idea of the sixth and seventh books of Moses. Um, and and that, that, that attribution was not lost on folks. So one of the biggest books, in, in addition to the sixth and seventh books of Moses, that was practiced by these, these powwow, and, and quite honestly, Poke, it's still practiced today, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, there, there was called The Long Lost Friend or The Long Whispered Friend. It was written by uh, George Hallman. And, um, you know, there's people out there that still work this book. It, it's kind of a mixture between a prayer book and a grimoire, and it's very practical in terms of, you know, you can only imagine how things kind of were out here on the early American frontier. You know, if, you, if, you're, if you're bleeding or if you have a toothache, you know, here's how you, here's how you stop a toothache. So very, very practical and, and, and almost uh, rustic 
in, in some of the 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 use usage of it there. And these hex signs, you know, they are they are rather ubiquitous. And some of these barns out here are quite quite old. And you even see barns that have you know been been built much more recently that obviously have you know a very tenderly crafted hex sign placed on there still to this day. Uh, because for for these folks that that farm, this is their livelihood. And whether or not it's a, a, a you know a religious thing for them or not, they're not going to take any chances. Um, they're not going to risk not putting up the hex sign and having their crop you know gone or anything like that. Um, there's actually a book by Nigel Pennick that that goes into some of the the geometry and stuff like that behind the hex signs. In terms of the the powwow, there's a great book uh, that was published uh, I think in 2009 called The Red Church by an actual modern-day practitioner of, of hexcraft or what they call brocari. Um And, yeah, it's still very prevalent. Um, there, there are practitioners, you know, it's kind of a word-of-mouth thing. If you were to drive up to the, you know, the Berks County or the Reading, Pennsylvania area, and let's say you had a really bad illness and you, you floated some word-of-mouth stuff to people that were in the know, they might whisper you down a few hallways and around a few dark corners, and you're going to find a real legitimate practitioner of Pennsylvania powwow. And that is still very much, uh, you know, almost like it is in the, you know, the, the African diaspora and the hoodoo practitioners. Um, this is something more Christian, but still very much a real thing, and, and people that, that, that need help will go seek out these, you know, these hexenmeisters, as they're called. Ah, sort of like, sort of like Santeria in the... Uh in the uh, Afro-Caribbean community. Yeah. Uh, you've got uh, something here in the outline about the curious case of the elusive Hexen cat. And, oh, yeah. uh, and, and, and it was captured. So this sounds like a, like a chupacabra. <laughs> so tell us about that. There is um, there's a smattering of, of, of newspaper articles in the early 1900s. It was actually 1911, Pope. And a number of newspaper articles in the Philadelphia Public Ledger, and one I think even made its way to the Washington Herald. Uh, it was Pottsville, Pennsylvania. And there was uh, a case where a woman, her name was uh, Mary Isabella Thomas. Her father, her father passed away under, I guess, mysterious circumstances, and the, the family farm had this you know, awful rash of bad luck. And for one reason or another, the, the, the charge of witchcraft was, was raised by the bereaved. And, and somehow this turned into a rather big story that was in the, the newspapers at the time. And this was not, you know, in the, the equivalent of the Sun or the Weekly World News. This was right there in the, in the Washington Herald. It was in the Philadelphia Public Ledger with the news of the day. And, and there are some very, very interesting headlines. Uh, I'll read you one. Uh, September 24th, 1911, the Philadelphia Public Ledger had a headline, and it read, "Blamed the witch cat. Girl declared hex had caused girl declared hex had caused father's death." That was followed up six days later in the same newspaper uh, on September 30th, and it said, "Hex a hammer-on cat will break spell." So one of the things that actually happened was they were they were sure that the curse uh, was caused by a cat. And they were trying to kill this cat with a gold bullet. So the, the newspaper reads, ever since preparations were made to shoot the hex cat with a gold bullet, it has failed to put in an appearance at the Thomas farm. And the hex doctors decided that the evil spell cast over the Thomas homestead can only be, 
be dispelled by a, installing a certain black cat. So there was a cat that was, uh, you know, owned by a guy in Schuylkill County that was born on the sixth day of the sixth month in 1906. So June 6, 1906, there was a black cat born, supposedly in a litter of six kittens, and the newspaper goes so far as to say that it was blind for only six days after being born, and all normal cats are only blind for nine days. So there, the, the Hexen doctors apparently got together in some kind of a grand council and decided that since they could not kill the cat, they were going to park a special black cat on the family property, which was going to act as some kind of talisman against harm. Um, now, that's not where the story ends. The Washington Herald on October 2nd, uh, you know, a week or so later, declares that the demon cat is captured. And it says that it was captured by a Bible thrown at it. This kind of conjures up an image of some, some poor cat having a, a, a huge piece of literature thrown at it. It's <laughs> yeah. captured, captured by a Bible thrown at it. The only witch cat the hex believers of Schuylkill County know to be in captivity is tonight being exhibited in a show window here behind eight-inch steel bars where hex doctors are anxiously studying the creature to determine whether it is the animal which Miss Mary Thomas blames for the death of her father and a long train of other misfortunes in the Thomas family. So at some point, they found a black cat that seemed to be guilty. They threw it behind bars, and they studied it with some kind of a scientific fervor. <laughs> so, it was, they, never shot, it, they never shot it with a gold bullet, did they? I, I don't think they ever got to it with a gold bullet. But they did try to park that special, um, they call it a hexahammeron cat. You know, and it, all, it, it begs the question of, you know, who these hex doctors were that came up with this idea. You know, this was the, evidently this was the think tank of, of Pottsville, Pennsylvania, getting together and, and they all molded over and they said, you know, there is this special cat that was born under mysterious circumstances, this 66666 cat, and we're going to park it at the house. And a week or so later, they put the other cat behind bars. And, you know, it, it occurred to me, Poke, that this is all coinciding. You know, at this point, it's October 2nd, and it's getting quite close to Halloween here. Uh, and, you know, you've got this story running in the newspapers about the hex cat, you know? Yeah. And, and it was a rather fantastical story. And, I mean, this thing literally pops up in, you know, four to, four to six newspaper articles in the span of a week or two. I mean, this was big news back in the day. Well, you remember you remember when uh, Orson Welles did his Mars invasion, <laughs> October thirty first. <31st. laughs> Boom! Yeah, yeah. So, so that's a if you're gonna if you're gonna do something like that, Halloween's a good time to to to, to be doing it. Uh, and you know, keeping going on with this uh, with this uh, on this theme, you have uh, here a note about the York County nineteen twenties murder case. Uh, and it, which was written about in a book uh, called Hex by Arthur Lewis, uh, and uh, later I guess did, it did done as a film and uh, called Apprentice to Murder. Was that with, with uh, Sutherland, uh, starring Sutherland? Uh, yes, sir. So that, yes, sir. That that's actually based on that story that was originally written about in Hex by Arthur Lewis. And uh, what uh, were you going to tell us about that that murder case? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there was a there was a case in the 1920s, um, and this 
this goes to show, you know, the ubiquity of, of this so-called powwow or, or Hexenmeister uh, subculture that existed at the time. Um, you know, it, it's easy for us to say that there were a few guys that were practicing uh, Hexenry, but this, there was actually a, a rather vast network. In, in Arthur Lewis's book, and, and I, I, don't, I don't pretend to know the level of scholarship behind it, but he really alludes to this, you know, incredible network of, of Hexenmeisters uh, in the area. You know, I, th I think he numbers it either hundreds or thousands of them. So there is this underground culture uh, of what they would call hex doctors. And, and at one point in the 1920s, um, one of these guys was, you know, as the story goes, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And you see it in Robert Roman and, and you see it with the hex cat. Uh, one of the practitioners in the area uh, was accused of, of, you know, doing something uh, at someone else's expense. I think there was maybe the charge that there was a curse uh, put on someone. Uh, and, and a few of the guys got together and they killed them. And that was the, that was the murder trial. So it was actually the, the Hexenmeister, the, the Hex Doctor, uh, was suspected of some kind of, uh, you know, magical mischief. And they, and they, they killed him. And that was the um, that was the murder trial. So it was it was a rather sensationalistic murder case. But you know this is a very interesting subculture we have out here, Pope. There's there is a certain element out here, uh, just like you have out there out west with the you know the Mount Shasta stuff. There is this, this kind of sense of, of timelessness. So in, in a community like that, there is still that rustic, you know, old world flair. Uh, there was a story a, a year or so back where an Amish uh, a rather extreme Amish sect got together and, and they, they went after another man's beard and they cut off the beard. And there was a question as to whether or not that was going to be prosecuted in present day as a hate crime because that's a very serious thing to cut off a oh, beard. Yeah. So the, the Amish uh, and, and the, 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 the folks out there, the Mennonites and the Amish and that kind of uh, Christian sect, even to this very day, I mean, we're talking about the 1920s, but even now in 2015, uh, still a very seriously religious people, and any kind of um, religious slight is taken very, very seriously. So, yeah, they, they got together in the 1920s. Um, a few of these guys that thought to have been bereaved by this hex doctor, and they, and they killed them. And Arthur Lewis's book talks about that case, but he also talks a little bit about, you know, just what kind of culture was, was behind that. The book is called Hex. Uh, yeah. It was published by Arthur Lewis. I published printed well, by Arthur Lewis. Let me ask you this, because uh, I'm uh, I'm kind of aware, and I think most of us who are uh, following uh, uh, the magical tradition, we're aware that uh, that there was a, a following the Renaissance and and uh, into the so-called era of enlightenment, uh, magic. Uh, following the Renaissance, it took several turns. One turn was it went more Kabbalistic with the infusion of the Kabbalah, and that affected the Rosicrucians too. And uh, and and, but in Germany, and I'm asking you this to find out whether or not you think this may have, have come over. In Germany, something was developed called the Faustian school of magic. And, sure. and there's a whole bunch of books, a whole bunch of, uh, of, of grimoires that came out uh, around that time. And, of course, we had the printing press, and so uh, they produced, uh, you know, in a lot of these uh, these grimoires that were printed uh, and were of the Faustian variety. 
and and uh, the Faust, of course, as, as we all know, he he, he was a, a scholar who sold his soul to the devil and whatever. Uh, but uh, these these uh, these uh, Faustian uh, books were were pretty dark, and and uh, and even you might even say they were they were bordering on being satanic. Now, do you think that that Faustian school got over into uh, into our so-called Pennsylvania Dutch area? You know that that's a good question. I, to be honest with you, folks, I think that the 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 method of practice probably took a, a kind of a, a split approach between the Rosicrucian Hermetic bend and also the Christian uh, Kabbalistic bend of the the sixth and seventh Moses and the the Albertus Magnus school, which I'm sure you're familiar. But I will say this, yeah, uh, and it's particularly interesting. Uh, I, I know recently republished in German was uh, Faust's Threefold Coercion of Hell. Uh, that was just republished, I believe. And what is the, the harrow, you, mean, you mean you mean you mean the threefold harrowing of hell? Um, I'm, I'm right? looking. I, I see that there's been a published in Germany. Uh, it's called the threefold coercion of hell. First published in 1505, uh, and then yeah, over here, over here, it's called the harrowing of hell. But I guess that's just the way it was translated. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah the yeah. main motif of the book is the harrowing of hell. I see here. So. Yeah. One of the one of the trademark motifs in that in that book, in, in terms of the literary publication of it, as I'm sure you're familiar if you if you've looked at any of the manuscripts, is that it was published in this red and black ink, um, and it was kind of a you know as you're reading about Mephistopheles and and how to summon uh, all these demons you know along the lines of Faust or Doctor Faustus, you actually you actually see that the the publication in Germany was red and black. And, you know, being a German product, I don't know if it was the way the printing presses were set up, but you also see the same kind of printing in some of the sixth and seventh books of Moses. Uh, I was on Joe Peterson's site uh, before the show tonight kind of skimming through the sixth and seventh books of Moses, and you see the, the circles and things are all in red and black. So it is, oh, yeah. it is it kind of it, it's an interesting, um, you know, you might just say that the Germans, that's the way that they do things. I know in, in the, the occult tradition, red and black and white have all sorts of different you know, connotations, and it's almost Solomonic, the red and the white stuff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly that, you know, this is German stuff. You know, you're, you're dealing with the Pennsylvania Dutch, and there's there's the German influence there as well. Um, whether or not the Faustian stuff, you know, dovetails with the, the sixth and seventh books of Moses, I think that's an interesting question for scholars. You know, I, I think that there might be some, some ground to be tread there with, with comparing the you know, the German magical text from both the Christian and the so-called diabolical traditions to see, you know, just what they do have in common versus how different they are. Well, you were talking about the uh, about the 1920s uh, murder, murder case that was written about in the book uh, Hex by Arthur Lewis and, and, uh, and you know, and, and ended up as apprentice to murder in the films. And that's why I, I brought up the subject of the Faustian books, because I thought maybe if, if we do have that sort of thing going on, then, then the dark side of it would certainly, uh, in, in, a, in a transplanted German community, because when we say Pennsylvania Dutch, that's what we mean. Uh, and we're talking about, uh, about people from Germany, basically. And, and that's correct, isn't it? I, I think so. I mean, you've got, you know, obviously the Dutch proper and the Germans and this kind of a melting pot. You know, I will say this, too. You're absolutely right. It only presupposes um, that if you've got this community of people that, that heal the sick and they're the folks you go to when you lose something or you need to be cured of an ailment, it only makes sense that there might be um, a more uh, malefic 
type of trade to be utilized. Um, and I think that in, in the case of, of Hex by Arthur Lewis, the practitioner was accused of throwing a curse and then he was later murdered. So what kind of books would he have used for something like that? That's a real good question. Um, you know, there yeah, is I don't this, think I, yeah, we're getting we're getting down we're getting down, you know, toward the end of the hour here and I I think we ought to get off this dark stuff. Uh, you know, uh, and, and because because that I, I really don't think you want to emphasize you emphasize that talking about uh, talking about your occult uh, uh, tradition. We don't want to emphasize right. the dark end. I thought I'd mention it in connection with the uh, with with the uh, you know the murder case and and the Hexen cat and whatever. Uh, what about this Hexenkoff Rock in Northampton County? Uh, uh, sure. Uh, yeah. What what's what's the story on that? You know, this, this dovetails rather nicely with your, your question about the Native Americans and things like that. Um, and, you know, just to, just to backpedal a little bit, if there's one thing that's clear from all of this, you know, whether it's, it's beneficial magic or, or evil magic, for, for lack of a better term, the one thing is very clear. Uh, from colonial times up through present day, there is definitely a widespread belief uh, in magic in general out here. And I don't think that's a uniquely Pennsylvania thing, but that's something that's certainly poised. And I mean, we, there is a definite pedigree here of a, of a rather uh, spiritual people. Um, but to go to your particular question about Hexenkopf Rock, uh, there, is a, there is a rock up there in, in um, Northampton County that has a, a rather legend of its own. And I actually think, to, to dovetail this back to your topic, I think this does appear in the Weird Pennsylvania book. Um, there, this, this rock has a reputation of being a mysterious place, and, and the legend goes that it was actually used by the, the Hexenmeisters or the powwowers as this place of power. So, you know, you see throughout America and even the occult tradition these various places of power. Um, you know, and it, they, they, they seem to invariably be underground or, or caves, you know, like Glastonbury Tours, the iconic underground fairy mound. Um, and you've got Mount Shasta and, and Shambhala, you know, the gateway to Shambhala out there in, in California. And here in Pennsylvania, we have Hexenkopf Rock. And that translates loosely to uh, the witch's head. And that is in Northampton County. And, and the, the legend goes that that's a, a place where, you know, the Hexenmeisters or the powwowers get together and, and, you know, work ritual. Before that, before that, there is an idea that it was maybe used by Native Americans. And that is, you know, where they sort of liberally... Uh, acquired the the uh, the place of power from was the Native Americans before them, and that's that's part of the the uh, the allure of it that it was used for Native American rights supposedly. I mean it, that's not a particularly scholarly assertion, but I think that's why people go there. That's what they believe. Yeah. So did, did anybody put any hex, uh, any any petroglyph or pictograph uh, uh, hex signs or anything on it? I, I don't know for sure. I, I think it's it's one of those places, um, you know, that that, that kind of has the you know the the locals that go up to it and they hang out and they they, they want to see what it's all about. And as I understand it, it's now on private property. Um, so I've not been there myself, but I know that there's there's pictures on the internet of it, and they call it the witch's head because it resembles something of a of, of a base. And also the, um, the the legend behind it that it was this mysterious place. You know, and, and that can go one of either two ways. It's either a place to be avoided or it's going to track everyone. Uh, you know, the, the, you know, the thrill seekers and the serious practitioners uh, that are looking for a place of power. I mean, it's, it's, 
there's always invariably there's a legend about a place of power. I mean, one that comes to mind is you know uh, Bill Gray had the Rollwright Stones in, in England. Uh, there's yeah. always there's always this monolithic structure. There's always this local Stonehenge um, that that's going to be you know attended to by the local practitioners. Yeah, well, one time Fred Adams took off for Europe and left us here to find the exact center of uh, spiritual center of Los Angeles. And so we all went trooping out to exactly where he had laid this thing out on the two lines, two ley lines where they crossed. And we got in the middle of, uh, of, the, of, the, uh, uh, of, the, of the Baldwin Hills area, and it was absolutely desolate. And down in, the, down in this bottom was this cistern. And it was like, you know, like a desert. It's this dry cistern. And right in the middle, right where the two lines crossed, if you want to survey this thing, was a dead scorpion. And that was the center. So that, unfortunately, turned out to be our... <laughs> we had to report to the master when he returned <laughs> that, uh, yes, we had gone there, but uh, but it was not what we <laughs> what we all expected. So I hope that your, your Hexenkopf rock is, is uh, you know, I... I, I I'd, I'd like to see it. I remember when I was uh, uh, growing up up there in Lake Ariel, we had a little island in in the, one end of the lake. It was a little bitty island and had some rocks and it got a few trees on it. And they called it Dumb Man's Island. And I, you know, curious little kid, and I said, why is it Dumb Man's Island? Well, way back in the old days, there was a dumb hermit that lived in a small cabin on this tiny little island in the middle of the lake. That's what they told me anyway. Yeah, so there, uh, <laughs> there are uh, lots of uh, lots of uh, mysterious things that we've been talking about, and and uh, next time we get out to Pennsylvania, I'd, uh, well, maybe we make a make a, maybe we can make a, a pilgrimage to the Rock or something like that. Uh, Absolutely. And this, uh, yeah, this this really uh, uh, this really has been fascinating. And you know, especially it's especially fascinating uh, to me uh, having having spent some time as a child in your area, and and uh, you know, like I say, driving through the driving through the country and having having my mother point to every hex sign on every barn as we went by, and uh, so I I really kind of feel like uh, I've got the I've got the Pennsylvania Dutch in my in my in my blood and in my uh, in my my heritage, and I really, really appreciate this. You know, uh, your your paper. I, I read your paper, uh, which uh, for the historical society uh, on the Roman family, and found it fascinating. Are you going to do a, 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 a sort of a um, a summary kind of a thing on all of the uh, things we've talked about tonight? I'd like to. You know, there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of stuff in the local history that touches the surface, but there is there is so much more. Um, and, I, and I would hope to. So that that paper that you read, Pope, that was published in um, 2013 in, in a journal called Pennsylvania History. Uh, it's put out by Penn State University Press, and it is available on um, the Internet Archive, known as JSTOR. Uh, and most most colleges can can get into that paper for free. So if you do a search for my paper, it's called the Quaker Cunning Folk. Um, so so your listeners might might find it there, and if if they have a, an affiliation or they're, they're students in a college, they probably can download it for free. Uh, otherwise, it's a nominal fee, but that goes right to my publisher. It doesn't go to me. Uh, and, yeah, Poke, I mean, there, there is so much fertile ground for research in, 
in what we do. I mean, it was, it was Frances Yates that said, you know, she was just scratching the tip of the iceberg some 60 years ago. And I think that's, that's absolutely true to this day. Um, academia is only beginning to really dig into the, the esoteric side of things. And, you know, as you know, as an anthropologist, you know, there, there is so much there in terms of just a, an anthropological research point of view, too, and what people believe in general. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I hope to do more. Yeah, I can say I'd like to get in, get up there around the, the old Roman homestead with my trowel and see if I can see if I can dig up those tools that I that I suspect are buried somewhere around there. And uh, sure. anyway, uh, uh, Frederick Julian, this has been fascinating and really, really exciting. And thank you so much for sharing all this with us. And uh, and uh, uh, thank you also for the for the other. For the other uh, thing, which I which I better not mention because we're liable to be visited <laughs> by the the Quaker police if I do. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, uh, yeah, it's always and, it's always yeah. a pleasure. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, and thanks so much. And uh, next week we're going to try we're going to try to have uh, uh, another another guest uh, and and. Uh, I I can't say that he's going to be he or she will be as fascinating as as this as as uh, uh, Father Julian, but uh, we're we're going to try to have another one and uh, and Father Julian take care be well and good magic. Thank you, folks. Sora Talasa sends a regards as well. Have a good night, sir. Thank you so much. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.